Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. All right, so today I have Tori Dunlap with us on the Pink Tax podcast, and we're excited to interview her and her journey to $100,000. So Tori, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We, we persevered through technological breakdown, and we are here now. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we had a little bit of... Uh, I guess, tech issues here this afternoon, but um, I'm excited to have Tori on the show. Tori, why don't you uh, share with our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. So I am the founder of Her First 100K, which is a money and career platform for women. Basically, I believe I was put on this earth to fight for women's financial rights. And so after saving 100K at 25, I founded this platform to talk about money, to coach and speak about personal finance for women and to fight the patriarchy through financial education. So it's my favorite thing in the world. And I just love being able to give women these resources, these actionable resources to be able to better their financial lives. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, it fits perfectly with our podcast, right? We're all about feminism and finance. Um, so I'm curious, when did you actually start taking money seriously? You said you saved $100,000 by the time you're 25. So was that just in the recent years you started, you know, wanting to save that kind of money? Or have you always been interested in that? Yeah, I was lucky enough to have a really great financial education growing up. So I actually started my first business when I was nine years old. So I owned vending machines, the type where you nine put years a quarter old, in. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The type where you put a quarter in, you get a handful of candy out, like those kind of vending machines. Um, and so I ended up owning 15 of those by the time I graduated high school, all the profits went to my college fund. And then I later sold that business to a 10 year old who happens to be named Tori as well. <laughs> Oh my so, God, I um, love that. Yeah, she's now doing the same thing that I, I was doing. Um, but I mean, I knew the business thing was rare, right? I knew that wasn't normal. Uh, but I did see my parents just make really, really smart financial choices. So I saw uh, my dad negotiate the cable bill every month. I saw my mom balance the checkbook on the 13th and the 21st of every month. Like I saw her just be really, really responsible with money and my dad as well. And so um, I knew the business thing was, was rare. I knew that wasn't normal, but I graduated college and thought, oh, everybody knows not to overspend on credit cards and everybody knows how to negotiate their salary. And of course I realized very quickly that that wasn't the case and especially not for most women. So I was the friend all my female friends were coming to for advice and guidance. And then I realized, oh, with this privilege I have comes a responsibility to talk about money and to give, again, give women these financial resources. So yeah, I grew up with a very, uh, a very great financial education and a very good foundation. And then just kind of became obsessed with learning as much as I could about how to save money, about how to grow money, about how to, yeah, fight the patriarchy through financial education. Because whether we like it or not, everything revolves around money. And so if we can start giving more women more money, we can start changing the entire world. Exactly. Yeah, no. And we've talked about that at the, on the podcast at length about, you know, the savings gap and it kind of turns into the investment right. gap. And that's kind yep. of stemmed from the fact that women do earn less than men. What has your experience been around fighting the patriarchy? And uh, I guess, where have you seen the biggest areas where we need to maybe make bigger strides? 
Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, you and I talk about money a lot, so I'm, I'm not surprised that, that it's on your mind too, but yeah, the wage gaps, we hear about that a lot, right? 78 cents to a man's dollar. It's even worse if you're a woman of color, but what we're not talking about is enough uh, is what you just highlighted, which is like the saving and investment gaps. So as women, we're taking less money, right? Because we're earning less than men. And then we're either waiting to invest or not investing at all. So less money, growing at a slower rate, and then women on average live seven years longer than men do. So we're taking less money, it's growing at a slower rate, and then we're expected to live longer on that money. How the hell does that make sense, right? It just doesn't. And totally. so um, we should continue, of course, to talk about the wage gap. We should continue, and this is part of what I do in coaching is I, I'm a negotiation coach. I've successfully gotten at least 10% more in every job I've ever held and have gotten probably $250,000 for women last year, just last year. Amazing. Um, which was amazing. Yeah. So we need to continue talking about that, but we also really, really need to talk about investing. Um, and I gave a workshop last night and I, I said it probably four different times just to really drill it in, but you cannot invest or you cannot retire if you don't invest, excuse me. You cannot retire if you don't invest. The math just doesn't work. You can't put your money in a savings account and expect that to be able to sustain you for 30, 35, 40 years. Like it's just, it's not not going to work. And so I think talking more about the importance of investing, talking about that it's not necessarily the amount of money you put in, but more about time. Um, these are the conversations that we want to continue to have and have more often. And do you find that those conversations in your experience have been, I guess, had less with women and more so with men? Is that why we're seeing, you know, obviously there's a lot of different reasons we see these gaps and it, it's never yeah. just one thing, but, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on why women are kind of in the position that they are in around savings and investing. I think it's a lot of what we're conditioned to be as women. We're told um, that for whatever reason, like that investing is risky and that we wouldn't be good at it when it's actually been proven that we're better investors than men. So we've been conditioned and we've heard that narrative from a very young age. We also don't see ourselves represented, right? So um, in the finance industry on Wall Street, there's not a lot of women, especially not in places of leadership. And Wall Street in and of itself is very masculine. You know, the bull, the bear, um, you know, the, this is, they're very, very masculine representations. And so we when we're conditioned, right, to, to think that we're bad at investing and to think that investing is inherently risky, which it's not, um, and that, you know, to be told we're bad at it, and then also to not see women being active in that, in that realm, it's very hard for, for us to, you know, to make that jump to like, oh, I'm not investing to, I feel confident investing. And I'm trying to remember who said it. There was someone who said that like, investing is just like walking stairs. Like it's super easy. But that first step, that first step to get started is like seven feet high, right? So it's really easy once you've gotten started, but much like a lot of different things in, in the personal finance realm, like getting started is the hardest part. And so again, I think by having conversations about, and by giving women these actionable resources um, about how to invest, we can start, you know, having, having them make confident choices. And there's so many resources out there for women to, to make those kind of choices for themselves. Absolutely. No. And I think you hit on a couple important points. I, you know, I've never really thought about the bull and the bear as symbols of wall street being masculine, but it totally makes sense. And I mean, it, all you have to do is look at wall street to see that that is, 
truly the case that there's a ton of men to every one woman on wall street and you know women are told to act certain ways in those kinds of careers and jobs Um, and i think it's just more normal for men to just have money conversations unfortunately it's seen as like tacky or rude when women do it or like braggadocious men talk about money all the time and they just like throw out how much they make a year or what bonus they got or how much they're investing and what they're invested in and that's just a normal part of conversation and again because i think we've been conditioned um to not talk about money as women that's the patriarchy's way of holding us back right totally we're, we're not talking about money the more we're letting it win that's you know that's a great way of thinking about it now i am curious uh we're coming up into a lot of companies kind of annual review periods uh Mm. i know my company does their annual reviews kind of end of march early april i'm wondering what your thoughts are on you know individuals within a company talking about their salaries because i know in many companies it's kind of frowned upon or your manager will tell you don't do that but um i'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that i mean the legal ramifications of it assuming you didn't sign anything technically they can't let you go because of it right or they can't punish you because of it but like you said just the perception of you talking about your salary can sometimes rub people the wrong way um I would say if you're talking about money in any sort of aspect, especially if you're just getting started, I will talk about money with anybody because that's what I do. Right. But if, right. if you're nervous to talk about money for the first time, especially if it's specific numbers, talk first with people you trust, right? Share your story with people who are deserving of your story. So somebody you trust at work, that's a great time to talk about salary and talk about, Hey, this is what I'm making, or this is what, you know, the market rate is for this position. I don't know if you have any insight into it, but what would you suggest I do, right? And framing it in terms of advice, um, chances are that person will be more than willing to, um, to not only, of course, talk to you about money, but also give you what they're making as well. So I would say don't go to, you know, around the entire company and being like, I make this, what do you make? Because that will get back to your higher ups and it probably won't go over very well. So start with, you know, with people you trust and then have those conversations. Um, and as well as, Uh, the best time to like offer your salary numbers is actually when you're leaving. That's the other great time. And at that point is a really great time to be like, here's exactly what I was making. I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going to shout it from the rooftops. Yeah, for sure. I think obviously, you know, going around and yelling what you make, maybe not the best approach, but I do (laughs) think that um, in some circumstances, especially women don't necessarily know what like what their male counterparts are maybe making or what the going rate is for that role. Yeah. And if you are a man listening to this, you do have a responsibility to inform your female counterparts of what you're making because chances are we are making less than you. And I would also offer that if you are a white woman, you have the same responsibility to women, uh, or I should say straight white woman, you have the same responsibility to your queer women uh, or women identifying counterparts, um, to your um, women of color counterparts, you have a responsibility as well um, to engage in those salary conversations and then hopefully to advocate for other people as well. If you are in a position of power, if you, if you even suspect that you might be making more money, have those sorts of conversations with people. Um, and that, that's a really amazing way, of course, to, to not only provide more equity in the, in the workplace, but to also just do your part, right? it's really hard to talk about like fighting the patriarchy and the wage gap and these problems seem much seem much larger than us 
But again, by having these conversations and by taking initiative, that's how we start changing things is just, you know, do what you can as an individual. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more on that. Um, So switching gears here a little bit, I am curious, and I'm sure some of our listeners are also curious, how you actually managed to save $100,000 by the time you're 25. That's a huge goal and congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, The first thing I'd like to acknowledge is that there is privilege as part of my story. Um, So I graduated college debt-free. That wasn't because my parents wrote me a check and they were like, go have fun. It wasn't because I have a trust fund. Um, I worked three on-campus jobs. I uh, got quite a bit of money in merit scholarships. Um, I obviously had, you know, my vending machine business and then I worked during breaks from school. But my parents were also in a financial position where they could um, assist in, in paying for, for my degree. So and it wasn't- Just to again, interrupt for a second, yeah. for some of our Canadian listeners, how, are, do you mind sharing how much your university or college was? Oh gosh, um, I would say if, I, if there was no merit scholarships, and I think like 98% of students got some sort of, some sort of merit scholarship, okay. the ticket price with room and board is, was about $53,000 a year which was hefty. Yeah. So it was probably, my college was probably about half of that, maybe about 20 to 24, depending on the semester, depending on, um, you know, how much I was able to get in scholarships. I got no, uh, financial aid, like no, I, I did not qualify for the FAFSA. So, um, I got no institutional aid. All of my aid was merit-based or, um, you know, I, like I got a theater scholarship cause I studied theater. So, um, yeah, so it was definitely a collaborative process between me and my parents of, of again, not them just writing a check, but us figuring out, like, how can we pay for this? So um, that is something I like to acknowledge, though, is that I would not be at 100K that quickly had I not um, graduated debt-free. So that is one piece of my story. Um, the other piece is I started investing really early. So I opened up a Roth IRA when I was 21. Um, as I was kind of going into the first year at, at my corporate job, I opened up a Roth IRA and I maxed it out every single year. So of course the past couple of years have been a really, really great market. And so those market earnings helped me in, in hitting that hundred K goal faster. Um, I also automated my savings and that's, if you take anything away from this conversation, please automate your savings, take a percentage or a dollar amount of money and automatically have it transfer into your high yield savings account. A high yield savings account typically is at an online bank. It's going to earn you at least 1.5%. Um, your normal bank is earning you 25 times less than that. Um, and so I was able to put my savings on autopilot and just not think about it. Right. It was just accumulating. I paid myself first before I did anything else. Um, so that was a huge piece in, in me hitting hundred K um, I also negotiated my salary, like I mentioned. So every time I, I transferred jobs, um, I was negotiating my salary and, and got at least 10% more than what they had initially offered me. And then I priority based, I, I focused on priority based spending, which means I, you know, I didn't try to live a life that was completely devoid of all of the things I love, but I also didn't spend a ton of money either. I really focused on things that brought me the most joy spent most of my discretionary money there and then didn't worry about the rest of it. Amazing. Yeah. I think obviously like the investing early, 
is something that is key. And, you know, we have seen since 2008, 2009, the market going consistently up. We're probably going right. to see it go down a little bit, I would guess, in the next couple of years. But yeah, you know, I've, I've said this a million times, but the average of the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones or the TSX here in Canada, you know, if you look at it over the past 50 or 100 years, the, the trend line is up. So, right. you know, getting in when you can, and even if it's a small amount, I think that that's incredibly important. Yeah. And I talk about this in my workshops. I, this is fresh in mind because I did one again last night, but um, I ask people, would you rather have a million dollars now or a penny that doubles every day for a month? And um, the penny that doubles every day for a month turns into $5.3 million. And that's really to show the power of compound interest, of course, but also the power of time. It's not necessarily about the amount of money. Of course, if we all had a million dollars to invest right now, that would be pretty amazing. But it's really about time. So if you're like, you know, 20, early 20s or even early 30s and you're going like, why do I need to save for retirement? Like, why do I have to do this right now? It, it's so important to even start with, you know, uh, $50 or $100. Just get started because that $100 will end up being thousands, if not tens of thousands by the time you retire. So it's not necessarily about the amount of money. It's really about getting started as, as early as you can. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, another interesting thing when you said, would you rather have a million dollars now or a penny that doubles each day? I think that also speaks to how we kind of conceptualize money. A million dollars sounds like a lot of money and a penny doesn't sound like anything, but, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, you can't see the forest from the trees type, type of a thing. Taking a step back and seeing what the long-term implications are will, I guess, yield you a better return or more money in this scenario. Right. And I think so many people, the argument to be made is that a lot of people pick number one and they say, I want a million dollars because I want it right now. Right. (laughs) And um, there's nothing wrong with that. I totally understand that perspective. But again, the power of of waiting and the power of allowing things uh, and giving things time, um, there's no get rich quick scheme. Right. There's no magical way to be there. There's no get out of debt button. There's no, you know, get out of debt free card. You know, there's, there's nothing like that. Unfortunately, just like everything else in life that's worth doing. It's hard. It's challenging. Um, that's why you and I both do what we do, right? We're there to counsel people and cheerlead people and, um, help them through it. And it's actually, it's, it's so incredible once you start making, you know, achieving those financial goals and making financial strides that you feel like you can do anything. You feel like you can lift a car. Right. And so, that's the power of, of thinking in terms of your entire life. And again, like you said, the forest from the trees, thinking through, you know, what do I want my life to look like in five years or 10 years, in 30 years? And then also balancing that with wanting to, you know, take a trip to Cabo this year. Oh, I love Cabo. <laughs> I have not been. I like, I brought it up in my workshop four different times last night and I literally like interrupted the workshop and I was like, apparently Cabo's on my brain. Like apparently I need to go to Cabo. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got to be quick from Seattle down there. I mean, from Canada, oh, yeah. like direct three or four hours or something like that. Oh yeah. It's probably five hours maybe. I don't know. I, I should look into it. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> um, so you know, you've always obviously been a bit of a, a business woman, or I guess you were a kid at one point, so a business kid. I don't know if that's sure. the right term for that. Yeah, that but, works. Um, I'd love to hear more about your business, what you're doing. And, you know, you 
decided to quit your job recently. So how yeah. is that all going for you? And is it, I guess, is it scary or? Oh, it was hundred percent scary. Yeah. So I built my business as a side hustle for three years before I quit my nine to five job. So I worked in marketing for almost five years, um, and built my business on the side. Um, and that was one of the smartest decisions I made. Too many people will, you know, if you're building a business, we'll just tell you like, go all in, be an entrepreneur, quit your full-time job. And of course, not only is that a very privileged statement, right? But um, it's just not feasible in a lot of circumstances. And it's, at least for me, it was not the smart move. I needed to feel like I had a financial stability. I needed to find, uh, feel like I had a financial foundation um, and a proven business concept before I could just quit. Um, so I was a hundred, yeah, I was a hundred percent scared. I was very, very scared of, of going out on my own, but I had a lot of momentum. Again, I had like the two things that most entrepreneurs don't have or most, you know, starting entrepreneurs don't have, which is a proven business concept that's already making money as well as money in the bank. So I had already hit my hundred K at that point. I was actually featured on good morning America. And then about two or three weeks after that is when I quit. Um, and circumstances just kind of changed. I was actually going to wait another six months to quit my job, but like the timing it's, it was, it was just, it was what needed to happen at that point. And so left my job and it's now month three because November, December, January. Um, and I will actually out earn my nine to five income in January by four times. Oh my so, gosh. Congratulations. Thank That's you. Amazing. So, um, you're kicking ass. I, thank you. I think so too. I'm really thrilled about it. But um, I'm just so excited that my business is something that I believe I was put on this earth to do. And in addition, ends up changing women's lives. It's my favorite thing. And I am so honored that the thing that I can use to pay my bills also has a, a substantial impact on people, especially on women. And so, yeah, I, I'm so thrilled with... Um, with the thing I've created and what it's, what's turned into. And I'm so excited to see what's next. Um, the more kind of like, uh, you know, logistics side of it or the, you know, kind of under the hood side is like, yeah, if I earned four times the amount of money I would have earned, however, we don't know what February is going to be. <laughs> I don't know what March is going to look like. So, um, it's, it's me learning, uh, to be responsible in a different way of saying like, okay, I might not be able to pay my bills in two months. So how do we take the earnings that I've, you know, I've made in January and save them and allocate them so I can, you know, make payroll in March. So that's, yeah, that's a lot of the things I'm thinking about of growing the side hustle, having it turn into a business. How do I continue to grow and scale it while also making sure that, um, of course, I'm not burning out as well as I'm paying my bills. For sure. Smoothing that revenue curve kind of as a new entrepreneur is something that is very challenging. And I've seen a lot of clients that I've worked with kind of struggle with that and until they kind of almost find their footing and have yeah. those like regular paychecks. Yeah, I'm super thrilled. And I, I'm not so scared anymore. I, I have a plan. I know, I know what needs to happen. And um, I mean, my brand is her first 100K for a reason. So I want to hit at least 100k in um, business revenue this year, and I am on Amazing. track to do that. So, I was actually just going to ask what your goals are for 2020. It is still January, even though I feel like this month has flown by. I know. But, um, obviously, you're hoping to earn 100k from your business this year, which is fantastic. Do you have any other financial goals or other goals? 
Yeah, um, I actually haven't really announced this publicly, and maybe I shouldn't, but I am working on um, uh, a book proposal right now to, to write a book about financial feminism. And so um, assuming I can get a book deal, then I will start writing the book. And so that's kind of something I'm thinking about a lot in the, in the next coming months. And I'm also really excited to um, continue, of course, talking about personal finance, but to also talk about how I did what I did, how I was able to grow a side hustle with very, very minimal expenses to the point where I could make enough money to do what I love and, and quit my nine to five and stop making somebody else rich. Uh, so I will continue talking about that. And again, like giving, giving people a look under the hood. So expect more from that from, or expect more of that from me in 2020. For sure. And I guess it, I don't know if there are any publishers that listen to this, but if there are, make sure you hit Tori up and uh, <laughs> lock down that book deal for sure. That'll be a fantastic read. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. All right. So I think we're just kind of coming down to our last question here. One of the questions that I, I like to ask our guests, um, it, it's an interesting one. And I think that it, the answer to it can change kind of as you move through life. But I'm curious as to how much money you think a lot of money is. Oh, I have never been asked that question. A lot. Yeah, it's a, it's a stumper because I think, you know, obviously I remember being in high school thinking $30,000 was a lot. Right. But, you know, you get your first job and you're like, all right, $30,000 doesn't really right. cover many bills. So no, now that you saved 100K... I'm curious as to, and you're hoping to earn, you know, revenue of 100K. What to you is a lot of money? It's really interesting you ask that because um, my answer is going to be inherently very privileged. And I want to acknowledge that first of all. Like, again, like $30,000, right, to you and I, like, that, yeah, that used to seem like a lot of money. It's not a lot of money to me. I remember when a million dollars felt like a lot of money. And in my opinion, that's really not that much money. Um, but to some people that might be. So of course, um, I, my initial impulse was 10 million. That 10 was my million? initial impulse. And I think it's because, again, I would have answered this very differently until I started talking to more people with money. There's a lot of straight white men out there who have a lot of millions of dollars <laughs> or billions know? of so, dollars or billions of dollars or trillions of dollars. I think oh we're getting gosh. close there. So I think, um, yeah, when you start realizing just how much money there is in the world and how many wealthy people there are, um, and of course, you know, 1% of the 99%, but yeah, I would, I mean, my first, my gut impulse, I'm just going to answer honestly was, was $10 million. But I mean, even like three, four, five million all seem like substantially big numbers. Um, yeah, one million dollars is unfortunately not what it used to be. When you think about, um, well, you probably know the the number. What is it? One point five to one point eight million is what like the average person should expect to save for retirement in order to live. Um, yeah, I and I yeah. mean it. It depends, obviously, what kind of lifestyle you want to live, but also right, where right, right. you want to live. So, I mean, I've talked about this before on our podcast, but. I just bought a, my husband and I just bought a townhouse here in Calgary and uh, you know, it was $600,000. And right. so, I mean, to like, that's over half a million dollars. I, I mean, I never thought I would end up buying anything close to that price, but it just proves how much purchasing power has been kind of lost in terms of a million dollars really not getting you that far. Like we live in a fourplex. Right. We don't even live in a single detached home. Mm, wow. Yeah. So. And, and I live in Seattle where my one bedroom apartment is cheap at $1,500, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So uh, yeah, a million dollars 
is is the average like what is it i think it's 650 or 700 is the average home price in seattle some of these houses that are like one bedroom like no square footage are going for 400,000 so yeah um 1 million dollars does not seem uh like as much as it used to seem um especially when you're a kid and you don't really fathom how much money that is so for sure yeah my gut impulse was to say 10 million um, or my immediate my immediate response was 10 million yeah, and I think that that's, you know, I asked this question because I think it's important for people to start thinking about that because I think sometimes people do have the mindset that, like, I don't have a million dollars in the bank. So um, people might think like, oh, a million dollars is still a lot. But when you look at it actually over the course of your life or what that will mean in retirement, a million dollars, right. like you said, doesn't go very far. So, you know, starting those thought processes and conversations about investing and starting to invest you know, kind of puts you on the, the right track to financial success. And hopefully that means having a couple million dollars in the bank when you retire. Yeah. And retirement is the biggest expense of our lives, like beyond buying a house, beyond going to college, beyond sending our children to college, it will be the most expensive thing any of us will ever do is retire. And so when you figure that you're working probably at least 30 years, you know, typically 35, right. To hit um, retirement age, you're hoping to live at least another 35 and they're probably going to be the most expensive years of your life because you have medical costs. So you're working for 35 in order to live, you know, probably income free for another 35. So yeah. Or more people way. are living right. like my husband's grandparents are like in their mid nineties. Wow. I'm yeah. sure they didn't expect to live that long. Like that's a little morbid, but no, but yeah, that's the reality. And so yeah, when you when you start thinking that way, a million dollars is not a lot of money. No, it's definitely not. Well, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with me this afternoon chatting about, I guess, all things finance and feminism. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Thank you so much for having me. I love your work, and so it's so cool to actually get to talk to you. Um, I am at Her First 100K on all the socials, or you can find me on my website, herfirst100k.com, H-E-R-F-I-R-S-T, 100k.com. Um, Instagram's my primary platform. I talk about a lot of things, money, and also like my obsession with Timothy Chalamet and fried chicken <laughs> and a bunch of other stuff. So um, sign my DMs, come ask me money questions, come say hi. Yeah. And if you're in the Seattle area, I'm sure Tori would love to have you at one of her workshops that she hosts. Yeah. And I actually do virtual workshops as well. Oh, so I fantastic. Do a, yeah. A personal finance 101 workshop pretty much every month, as well as a negotiation, a salary negotiation workshop. So um, I have people literally from all over the world join Amazing. those workshops. So yeah, you can, uh, you can take a virtual workshop with me as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, 2020 is, is our year. We need to ask for what uh, we, should, we deserve to be paid. Like let's yep. go do this. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. All right. Thanks, Tori. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances.